Hi, I'm Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. The way we see the world today is informed a lot by our past, both the good and the bad. This is where our podcasts come in. Podcasts like Residential Schools, a three-part series created to honor the stories of survivors, their families and communities, and to commemorate the history and legacy of residential schools in Canada. I didn't want to be an Indian. I didn't know who the hell I wanted to be. I wasn't accepted by the white man. I wasn't accepted by my own people in my reserve. Subscribe to Historica Canada podcast for deep dives into our past. You can listen to residential schools on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Never stop learning. En 1971, le Canada est devenu le premier pays au monde à adopter une politique officielle de multiculturalisme. Cette politique visait à préserver les libertés culturelles et à reconnaître les contributions de divers groupes à la société canadienne. Aujourd'hui, le multiculturalisme est une caractéristique déterminante de l'identité canadienne. Mais pendant une grande partie de notre histoire, ce n'était pas le cas. Écoutez Trouver sa place, une histoire du multiculturalisme au Canada, une série de balado-diffusion en cinq parties de Historica Canada. Joignez-vous à nous alors que nous explorons l'histoire du multiculturalisme au Canada. Abonnez-vous à la série Trouver sa place sur Apple Podcasts, Spotify ou partout où vous écoutez vos balados. One of my brothers, he was a code talker too, uh, too. his name is Peter, and uh, he was a hard-working man, you know, he couldn't find a better man to work. Come payday, he'd, uh, you know, he'd go on a toot, you know, till time to go back to work, and he'd, he'd drink to get drunk, and then he'd cry. He'd sit there and cry, I should have been killed, I should have been killed. Welcome to Record of Service, a podcast presented by Historica Canada. I'm your host, Maya Foster. In this series, we bring you interviews with Canada's veterans, their stories of life, loss, and service. In this episode, we hear from Frank Tompkins. Just a warning to those that may be listening with young ones around, today's story contains mature content. For some Indigenous people, joining the Canadian Armed Forces during the World Wars provided certain benefits like the opportunity for employment and the chance to claim rights and challenge social barriers. Of course, not all felt this way. Some saw the wars as white people's wars and therefore chose to stay out of it. And while opportunities were afforded to Indigenous participants during the conflict, they often ended when the war did. Frank is Métis, which it should be noted he pronounces as Métis. He was a private in the Canadian Army during the Second World War and one of more than 4,300 Indigenous people to serve at home and abroad during that time. At 18, Frank enlisted in the Canadian Army. It was 1945 and near the end of the Second World War. Frank had been inspired by his four brothers who had gone overseas. Here he talks about why members of his community joined up. In our part of the country, they just, just about cleaned out, out, cleaned up all the men because In those days, there was a shortage of work to start with, and uh, this was, of course, uh, employment as well as uh, doing something for your country. So uh, there was a great number of uh, people from my part of the country that was in the armed forces, a great number of them. Altogether, there was uh, 
I think 27 altogether are my immediate uh, family group that was in the service during the Second World War, and I had a couple uncles in the First World War. Incredibly, two of the Tompkins brothers served in top-secret roles as code talkers. While we don't have any information about Peter, Charles was recruited by the United States Army Corps headquarters. This American officer approached my brother Charles and, uh, of course, not, you know, asked a few questions as to how many Greek-speaking and English-speaking people that he knew. And, of course, he named uh, my brother, Peter, and uh, there was a few others from his hometown that he knew. It was uh, McDermott, Walter McDermott, and uh, uh, Archie Plant. When Charles was stationed in England, he was summoned with a hundred other Indigenous soldiers without any indication of what they would be doing. The Canadian military headquarters representatives paired up soldiers who spoke the same Indigenous language. Charles was paired with another Cree speaker to test his fluency. The partners returned accurate translations, and Charles was assigned to the U.S. 8th Air Force and the 9th Bomber Command. The American Army, of course, uh, were the ones really interested and uh, code talkers, and what they were used for in the early part of the war was they were placed, they were first did a little bit of training, you know, uh, how to to interpret certain certain types of aircraft and stuff, and then they were placed at different airports, and then uh, they'd send a message in Cree, how many aircraft, what kind of aircraft was going to be going on this uh, bombing run in England, and uh, they were translated back into English. To clarify, code talkers first translated the Allies' messages into their languages and then were sent into the field, where another code talker translated the message back into English. The information and orders were then passed up to commanders. Some of the words, like plane, bomber, and machine gun, did not exist in Indigenous languages. For these, code talkers needed to repurpose existing words. For instance, Charles Tompkins would translate Mustang aircraft to the Cree word for wild horse, Pakwatstatim. During both world wars, hundreds of indigenous servicemen from across North America transmitted classified information in their languages and stymied the efforts of the enemy trying to decode Allied messages. Charles Tompkins did not reveal his secret role until the end of his life, and many code talkers never spoke of their work. My grandmother, being, you know, being the Plains Cree uh, and, and the window of Pawnmaker and uh, quite a family history there as far as, uh, like, her her, uh, her uncle was uh, Big Bear. You know, he was quite active during the uprising. And, of course, uh, you know, growing up on the reserve and with the customs and all, she was a strong believer in uh, <clears throat> the Indian ways. And uh, she ta- taught my brother's an Indian song. There were just, if they were ever in in uh, combat and in a very uh, dangerous position, to sing this war song that she taught them. The Tompkins family had a connection to the Northwest Resistance of 1885. The resistance was a five-month insurgency by Métis and First Nations against the Canadian government in what is now Saskatchewan and Alberta. The nations had legitimate grievances with the government's colonial policies and the encroachment of settlers on their territories. The resistors were eventually quashed by federal troops and jailed. Louis Riel was tried and hanged for treason, and six Cree and two Assiniboine warriors were hanged at Battleford. 
Indigenous peoples who had been oppressed and abused under the treaties of the 1870s found that they were further subjugated and more closely administered by the government of Canada. Frank Tompkins' grandfather was Irish, but he was raised by a Cree nanny and he spoke Cree fluently. He was captured during the Northwest Resistance while repairing a damaged telegraph wire, and he observed much of the conflict. Here's Frank describing his grandfather's experience after the fighting ended. He ended up at the trial of Louriel, and uh, he was really sympathetic with the meters cause because he said the meters were right, and uh, Louis Riel was, was right in, in uh, you know, trying to get uh, something done for the meters people. After that, uh, later on, uh, my grandfather got a job as, uh, as a farm instructor in Pondmakers Reserve, and uh, that's where he met and married my grandmother, Speaking Cree fluently, of course, uh, he, uh, you know, just naturally fit in. Around this time, the government of Canada also began establishing industrial schools across the prairies. These schools were eventually part of the national system of residential schools designed to assimilate Indigenous youth into white society. On a large scale, children were removed from their families and stripped of their languages, cultures, and ways of knowing. As a child, Frank was a student at St. Bernard Residential School in Gruard, Alberta, where he was witness and subject to countless abuses. He remembers one instance in which a nun enlisted students to assist in the punishment of a classmate. Of course, the way it was in those days, nobody helped him, you know, nobody did nothing. They're so brainwashed in a residential school. And my dad happened to come to visit one day. I told him what happened. And he went to the priest, of course, to complain. And I got the biggest look I ever had in my life. She used uh, one of these things on me. And it's only because I was young and agile that, uh, that I could move quick enough. She only hit the flesh of my legs in the backside. And if she'd have hit a bone, I'm sure it might have broke a bone or something. That's how severe a beating I got in the residential school. And that I told my, my father. And that's when he says, to hell with this. He took us out of school and moved us to uh, this other co- this place called Jusard. At the close of the Second World War, the federal government enacted legislation to benefit returning service personnel. The program offered vocational training, land grants for farming, and business loans. However, these benefits were seldom extended to Indigenous veterans. There was discrimination after the war for most of the Aboriginal veterans uh, because uh, in the Legion, and the, I suppose you could say the same for just about any, any uh, veterans organization, the executive on these organizations were white. For the Tompkins family, access to the benefits outlined in the Veterans Charter was routinely denied. Preference was given to white veterans on everything. And uh, to give you an example of this, uh, my brothers, they made few frequent trips to Edmonton to try to get a grant or a loan to start up something, like commercial fishing. It was mostly commercial fishing and mink grants in those days. And they went to go to Edmonton to, uh, to try to get a grant. And uh, the train in them days ran three times a week. So if you went to Edmonton, you, you had to have an overnight deal before you could come home again. So they'd go to Edmonton, they made about three trips to Edmonton, and come back, uh, come back tomorrow. 
come back next week. Finally, they give up. And I'd say about 99% of the Medes people and the Indian people that tried that were given the same kind of response. Come back next week. Fifteen non-Indigenous men from Frank's hometown received the grants denied to his family. These men would go on to establish successful businesses in mink ranching and commercial fishing. And this is the treatment that our people got after the war. Record of Service is a production of the Memory Project Speakers Bureau and Archive, connecting veterans and Canadian Forces members with school and community groups from coast to coast. The Memory Project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. We are a program of Historica Canada, a nonprofit offering programs that you can use to explore, learn, and reflect on Canadian history and what it means to be Canadian. Go to thememoryproject.com to browse our archive of interviews or to book a speaker for your classroom or community event. If you're a veteran or an active member of the Canadian Forces, please contact us to find out how you can become a speaker. If you liked this episode and want to learn more about the history of Indigenous Crown relations in Canada, check out the Treaties and Residential Schools Learning Tools at education.historicacanada.ca. Additional text for this episode comes from our sister program, the Canadian Encyclopedia. You can find links to their articles on Louis Riel, Poundmaker, Big Bear, Indigenous Veterans, and more at the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca. Follow us on social media at memory underscore project and at Historica Canada. Bye for now. Next time on Record of Service. So we thought, well, once we're here, we'll never get out alive. Nobody will ever know we've been here. Nobody even knows where we are. You could hear the moans and groans and agonies of people being tortured by the Gestapo. You could hear shots ringing out.